is Angela, and this is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading, and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this very exciting episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. This is Angela of Axon Root Homestead here, and as always, I have my co-host, Mandy, at Wild Oak Farms. Hi, Mandy. Hello. How are you? I'm well, and I'm very excited because we have an incredibly special guest with us today. The very brilliant and amazing Temple Grandin is here on our show. Hi, Temple. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. Now, Temple, do you prefer Temple, Dr. Temple, Dr. Grandin? How are you? Temple, that's okay. Are you sure? Yeah, Temple's okay. Perfect. Okay. So thank you so much for agreeing to be on our show. Yeah, we are so just fortunate to be able to be sitting here talking with you. Before we get started, though, Temple, I want to, you two know each other um, a little bit, right? Loosely. Loosely. Very, very loosely. Angela, do you want to fill people in just very briefly? Absolutely. So I had the good fortune to meet Temple at the Homestead Festival last year. Um, I was in the hotel lobby for breakfast and I saw Temple sitting there having a conversation with one of her colleagues and I decided to muster up the courage to go up to her and introduce myself and we had a very nice conversation about book publishing and um, you know a few months later it came time to where my publisher of my own book The Sustainable Homestead asked me to reach out to some people and see if they would be interested in writing a foreword for my book. And one of those people I reached out to was the Temple Grandin. I had no idea if I had her correct email address and I figured she wouldn't even get a chance to read it. But lo and behold, she was gracious enough with her time that she decided that yes, she would indeed write the foreword for my book. And so I've gotten to speak to her um, in a few conversations since then. And she's just a lovely person. Well, it's really great to be here tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. So I think we'll jump right in so we don't waste <laughs> anybody's time, but we're going to talk to you about your paper. Um, yeah, grazing. Raising my paper right here. Raising you got it. I, I have it too. Keeping goats. Yep. Okay. So everybody, um, we'll put it in show notes, uh, a link to the paper, but it's, it's incredible. So you all should, should take the time to read it. Um, so Temple, your paper explains importance of rotational grazing and planting cover crops, yes, both for grazing those uh, cover crops. Yeah. And what I did in this paper is I just found every scientific study I could find, I reviewed it because a lot of people are saying, you know, that, you know, cattle and other ruminants are just wrecking the land, but they can actually improve land if you use them right. There's a place for ruminants. In fact, today I just read in the Wall Street Journal that goats love to eat Christmas trees. And they, they do. using goats to get rid of Christmas trees. I can confirm that. We have dairy goats and they love them. It's like candy. Yeah. They said balsam was the favorite. Yeah. So why do you think that more farmers and folks in agriculture haven't already blended grazing ruminants and cash crops? Well, the problem Um, is farming has gotten highly specialized. And uh, 
now one of the things making people look at this is soil health has gotten bad. See, the thing about doing monocultures, in the short term, it works great. It works just fabulous. But in the long term, it doesn't. And also with fertilizer prices going up, that's motivated people. Also with supply chain problems in fertilizer. And so more and more people are putting cover crops in to improve soil health. But to make them pay, you need to graze them. Yeah. That's what you need to be doing. If you graze them, then you also get uh, the fertilizer from the animals. But you've got to do the grazing right. The other thing is it's very site-specific, very climate-specific. And what works in one place will not work somewhere else. So I cannot emphasize the importance of getting really good local advice from people that know <laughs> what works in the local conditions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's good advice for for so many different things. I mean, we talk about it all the time. Angela and I both live in different climates as well as as you. And so what we're learning about our climate or microclimate and what you're learning or anybody else is learning is not going to be necessarily the same. That's right. You see, the other thing on the grazing, you know, people complain that cattle take up too much land. But the thing is, is you've got like 100 miles of eastern Colorado where the only thing that you can do on that land is to graze it. There's no other way to raise food on that land except grazing. But I want to emphasize you have to do it right. And you got to do just the right amount of grazing and start putting in, you know, pasture rotation systems. Yeah. Okay, so that brings me to my next question. And, and that's an excellent segue, that point you just made about Colorado. So let's take a land that is maybe too arid or sandy for growing cash crops. But you also explained in your paper that land typically takes three to five years to see any recovery in nutrients. Right. It doesn't happen overnight. That's what right. every study is showing. Three to five years to start to really, really show the benefits. So do you think if somebody was rotationally grazing and had cash or excuse me, cover crops and they wait three to five years, do you think that the land could regain fertility enough to then grow cash crops? Well, if you're, no, there's certain land you're never going to grow cash crops on. It. That eastern Colorado land is too arid. There's not enough water, either out of the sky or out of the ground for cash crops. There's okay. no way. Uh, you see, same thing with sand hills in Nebraska. There's a, It's too hilly. Um, you know, you've got hill country in California. You can graze livestock on it, but it's too steep for crops. You know, and then you've got, then of course, you've got your prime farmland in places like Iowa. Those are places where they need to be doing some grazing on cover crops with cash crops. Hmm. And that's where so, cash crops like soybeans and corn really grow well. So I had a question I was going to say for the end, but I'm going to jump to it now because we 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 just touched on water. And this is something that I've been sort of wondering for a while, is you mentioned lack of water in the ground and in the air. But yet there are cattle that are staying hydrated. What is their source of hydration? Well, there's enough water to water the cattle. But watering okay. the cattle takes okay. a very small amount of water compared to watering a cash crop. Got it. Okay. So one thing I read on the University of Nebraska website, because I saw that you had a lot of familiarity yep. with the University of Nebraska, is it said that it could take, um, depending on the, the, the steer, the species, the health, the size of the animal, it could take three to 30 gallons of water to hydrate that animal per day. 
Mm-hmm. If that is the case and they're pumping that much water to one sphere, let alone an entire well, okay, herd. Okay, but the crops are getting a lot more than that. The crops right. are getting more than that. Yeah, the crops should be getting, you know, the whole big field full of crops is getting way, way, way more water. Way more than water than, than what it would take. Would be getting. Than what it would take to hydrate the herd. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, the other thing that's getting to be a trend is, um, is, a lot of these ranchers in Nebraska and in eastern Colorado, they need smaller cows. You know, if people are just breeding for meat, they tend to breed really big cattle. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good for meat, but it's not good for the ranch because that big steer has a sister that's huge and she's too expensive to feed in the wintertime. And so you want a more moderate sized cow to live out in the ranch because they're less expensive to feed in the wintertime, you know, especially if you have to, if you have to feed hay. That can get very, very expensive. Sure. It's kind of yeah. like the point that you make about certain breeds not being cut out for pasture versus feedlots. It's not so much the breeds. It's like lines of cattle within a breed. Got it. When you take Angus, for example, you got great big ones, but uh, there's also smaller ones. And the red Angus have been less selected for meat. So in eastern Colorado, you see a lot of red Angus because in that arid country, they need a smaller cow that can be overwintered more economically. Yeah, I guess I didn't really, I mean, you. I think about it, but not really, I mean, you put it, it's very simple the way you put it. Um, Big cows take more feed. So makes sense, cow. right? Yeah. Right. Um, I want to jump back up to, in your experience or opinion, what are some of the biggest mistakes that that, you know, stick out to you um, when you see folks trying to implement rotational grazing, well, one of the big mistakes is not allowing enough recovery time in between rotations. What people forget, and this is a very, very basic principle, the green leaves on top, we generate before the roots. And nature has a reason for that. It's got to get its solar panels up so it can get energy to grow. And you have to let the roots regenerate enough. And that takes longer than regenerating the green part of the plant. So you need to get extremely good local advice to make sure you're evaluating the roots. And the other principle is to kind of like eat half, just the right amount of grazing. You don't want to overgraze. Overgraze. You don't want that. (coughs) But you don't want to just have them bite the tops off the plants. You take about half and then you rotate. That's Mm -hmm. another basic principle. But again, things are extremely local. I think regardless regardless of your of your species of animal that you're rotating, whether it be uh, one variety, if you're co-species intergrazing, whatever cover crop you have, I think you had made a good point within your paper that if you're overgrazing and you're not allowing enough regenerative growth, it's just as detrimental. Well, that's As, very de- that's totally detrimental to the land. Yeah, and there's been land ruined with overgrazing. I'm not going to try to cover that up. I've seen it. You know, just chew it down to to nothing. No, that wrecks land. Recently, I was just out in Kentucky this fall, and there were some producers there starting to do rotational grazing. And there was some messed up pasture, and then there was somewhere I think they were starting to do it right. Mm-hmm. And and then it takes you know effort to move them, but if you work with your cattle, they can get easy to move. Hmm. Okay. 
Um, so I, I want to step away from arid landscapes for a moment and talk about something that a, a location that might have uh, more hydration and the um, opportunity to host more lush vegetation. It sounds like in your travels, you've seen some places where they are <coughs> rotating um, cover crops and then grazing and introducing cash crops. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And I think... Uh -huh. I want to, just for folks listening who may have not read your paper, I want to see if I got this right. So your suggestion, let's say we have field A, would be that we could plant a cover crop, then we could bring in some stock to graze that down rather and than then, use an and herbicide. Then you, and then you plow that crop cover, what's left under. After they, after. As a cover crop, yeah, you, uh, you graze it, you, you grow it, then you graze it. Another thing that people are doing is grazing corn stalks after they've harvested the corn and they'll turn cattle in on that. I've seen a lot of that in Nebraska. Okay. Now, cover crops improve soil health. And this one practice I think is just disgusting is um, farmers were putting in a cover crop of soil health and then killing it with Roundup. No, that's not the thing to do. The thing to be doing is to graze the cover crop. And then after you've grazed it, you can plow it under and then you've got fertilizer from the animals. And yeah. then you can put your cash crop in. Yeah, that's right. And you, you're going, you know, to every third year with the with the cover crop. And then I assume like if with the corn example, if corn is your cash crop, then once that season it's been harvested, you can return the animal to the field and they'll graze on that stubble. Yeah, correct. See, and this is where you see what's happened is farming's gotten very specialized. Mm -hmm. And what, um, you know, what a farmer needs to do is, is work with a local rancher that can bring the cattle in you know, let them graze it and then take the cattle out. So it's almost uh, like the thing that there's two things that are getting really starting to get people's interest in this soil health. The other thing is an end runoff. And then also the price of artificial fertilizer that went way, way, way up. I think that's such an important point because there are so many farms that maybe just grow soybeans or corn and they're paying to bring in compost or other forms of fertilizer from nearby farms. And so the thought for me had always been, why not work with a local rancher or why not keep a, you know, a small herd of cattle that you can go in and graze and have that manure fertilize the land for you. But I like your idea even more of just working with another local farm and sort of creating an interrelationship, like well, a people community. Are, people are doing those things. Yeah. And then the other thing is what works for cover crop in one place doesn't work somewhere else. Again, um, I've been to some seminars on, they say that what you put in the cedar, that's the million dollar question. What I recommend is really good local advice. Now, one of the things that's been a turnoff for um, corn and soybean farmers just starting out, is they've had consultants coming in, so we need to put a hundred different seeds in the cedar and the farmer's going, that's too hard. Um, you know, let's start off with something really simple. You know, you can you can graze wheat before it heads out, and that's grass-fed beef. As long as you graze it before it makes heads, before it has grain on it. Mm -hmm. You can graze wheat. In fact, what you can do with wheat's really cool. You can graze it halfway down, then it let it grow and have a crop of wheat. Yeah. So you're getting two that's uses right. on the same crop. That, yes. Some places that will work. It's not going to work sure. everywhere. Sure. Why do you, this is not a question that, that we had kind of talked about, but it's just sparked, you know, as we're talking, why do you think that soil health is more of a forefront in people's minds now versus 10, 20 years ago? Why weren't we talking about this 
because they didn't realize they were wrecking it 10, 15 years ago. Mm. See, this is the thing with the monoculture. In the short run, it works great. And in the long run, it doesn't. Yeah. That's that's the thing. Biodiversity is good. Whether it's in your gut, whether it's in your soil microorganisms. Hmm. And, um, and the thing I have found on a lot of things is the little people innovate. I don't care if it's electronic industry. Um, uh, well, there's a company right now that's making this AI program that can do writing, and professors are really concerned students are going to let that AI program do their homework for them. Oh, gosh. That, that was invented by a small company. Little people innovate. Yeah. Big people copy. Little yeah, people that's... innovate. Mm. And I don't care what industry you are in. That is true. What's this? What's the same? Let's look at something like, like, um, you know, Facebook that started in a dorm room. Or Google started in a dorm room and they came up with the idea of page rank. And that was a brilliant idea. You know how you have academic citations? Yeah. Uh, journal articles? Well, page rank is sort of like an internet version of academic citations. In other words, the more hits a website got, it would go up in the search findings. Mm-hmm. That was I can remember when that first came out, and that was very novel, very innovative, and compared to the old search engines like Alta Vista, you know, a huge improvement. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that it's all... was, um, see, that's a very simple idea that's really made a lot of difference. Evolution um, for. Uh, our our listeners who have maybe not read your paper, even though we're going to encourage everybody to read it, can you uh, better explain uh, intense mob grazing and where it may or may not be useful or appropriate? What mob grazing does is duplicate the way herds of wildebeest or herds of bison used to graze when they were migrating. A whole bunch of animals come into it, all packed together really tight for a few days, mow that grass down to about half and then move on. That's what they did. What mob grazing does is use fencing to kind of mimic that. So you take a bunch of cattle, you crowd them in really tight for just a few days, and then you move them. Now it works better. That works better in, in the more uh, rain, higher rainfall areas. That's the principle of of mob grazing. And then you're moving them every day or every two days. You're moving them all the time. Um, you've got to do it right to avoid problems with animals getting stressed. Uh, one study showed they got stressed, but I think part of the problem was they had very small groups, group sizes, like seven animals. Oh. And then the animal is always watching its backside so he doesn't get shocked on the electric fence. Uh, but that's the principle of mob grazing. And hmm. in the more arid areas, you're probably better off in, you know, like three or you know, four pastures. To rotate through. But what the the other thing the mob grazing does is it stops the animals from cherry picking the pasture. Or what Fred Provenza says, eat the best and leave the rest. In other words, pick all the candy off and not eat the celery. That's what goats do all the time. Then they have to mow it. Yeah. That's the principle. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So, I mean, it can it can be implemented, like you said, in areas with, with heavier, decent rainfall, not everywhere. So get local well, advice, right? Where, uh, in the droughts here in eastern Colorado, they had to cut back the cattle anywhere from 20 to, to 50%. Now, right now, I've got massive snowstorms out on those plains, and that's going to be giving a lot a lot of moisture. Mm-hmm. 
So <clears throat> I have a, a I had two part question. Um, I'm kind of going to combine them into one. So we are in a wetter climate here on the East Coast. We are in central New Jersey, my farm. Yes, that, that's um, a wetter climate. That's right. Yes. And so we have um, a rotational grazing circuit of two Clydesdale horses. We have five sheep and a flock of ducks and geese. And that is the order that we circulate them through. And we rotate everybody about every two to three days during peak forage growth season. Um, so this is going to be spring when things are really getting going into late summer. Things start to slow in the fall. Now, the other thing that is really important is the, the forageable cover crops that we've chosen don't just meet the crude protein and nutritional needs of the animals we're grazing. Um, they also do things for the soil. So uh, a spring forage cover crop that we have is going to be um, forage turnip and forage radish because that expansion is going to help to loosen compacted soil. But then there's other things that as I've gone along in my research that I've learned okay, you don't want to use something like a Piper Sudan grass because that's going to contain a prussic acid or prussic acid content that can be toxic to horses if grazed when it, there's a frost. And then we've all known or been familiar if, if you have any experience with horses that clover can cause them to salivate. So we use a white clover because it has the lowest levels <coughs> of mycotoxins. What I'm getting well, you're at- You're learning what works in your area. And that, exactly. is, that is really- Good because men have heard people say, Oh, we tried something that didn't work. So well, what it's so well, it's so site specific. It's you know it's local site. specific. It's Can I emphasize that enough? Somebody wanting to get into this needs to um get extremely good local advice. Why do you think so many people may struggle to understand that it not only is site specific, but the cover crops that you're planting are soil and species specific? Well, that's right. You've got to do the right local things. There's basic principles like allowing the roots to recover and the roots recover more slowly than the green stuff. That's a basic principle. Usually you graze, uh, if it's pasture, you want to graze about half of it, just the right amount of grazing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a cover crop, you can graze it down and then plow it under. Mm -hmm. Or if you're using no-till, but I think cover crops need to be grazed because of the, they, otherwise they don't make money. I was going to say it makes sense because then you are you're also then feeding you're you're improving the soil and also then feeding the animal versus what you said earlier. Oh, some folks are just tilling it in. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the thing. I think you see the, some of the very best cropland in Iowa, places like that, was created by herds of bison. Grazing animals created some of the best cropland. They're part of the land. And when I learned that, I'm going, there's a place for the grazing animal. And one of the reasons why I wrote this paper is I was sick and tired of just hearing uh, all the ruminants getting bashed when they may be part of the solution for improving the soil. It's all about shifting the mindset and kind of retraining what so many people have maybe potentially read or learned. Um, well, they <coughs> They talk about things like cattle take up too much land. Mm -hmm. well, what are you going to do with eastern Colorado if you don't graze it? Cannot right. crop it. Yeah, you can't grow food. No, you can't grow food. The only way to grow, grow food on eastern Colorado is about a 100-mile stretch on I-70. I've been down that 
but grazing is the only thing you can do on that land. I think a buzzword or buzz phrase we hear a lot right now is carbon sequestration. Yeah, and you can carbon. get some. You can get some carbon sequestration, and that, that is through do. that is through the act of grazing, mowing, if you will. That's right. And there's and certain places where livestock should not be, and Amazon that is one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, I've just read some really icky article today just on gold mining in these places, contaminating every, everything with mercury. Mm. That's really bad. Hmm. But carbon sequestration happens when growth and forage regenerates. And so the the mowing needs to happen. The grazing needs to happen because that's how carbon is absorbed through photosynthesis. You have to do the right amount of grazing. You take about half. Yeah. Because if you, you know, then the plant is able to regenerate and just, and mowing actually can stimulate growth. Yeah, I mean, I hope everybody is kind of taking notes because you, you're, I mean, you're reiterating the very important parts. I want to ask a question that is near and dear to my heart. Um, so in your paper, you talk a lot about animal welfare and we're talking about rotational grazing and that lifestyle. Um, can you explain that rotational grazing lifestyle being better for the animal, the land, but also our our relationship with the animals, so the human-animal well, relationship. One of the things that's good if you're doing rotational grazing, you're seeing your cattle all the time. Well, my former student, uh, Lily Edwards Callaway, just did a big study on cattle handling, and they use the Beef Quality Assurance cattle handling measurements. And some ranches are doing just a great job, and unfortunately there were some ranches that were putting electric prods all over everything. But one of the things she found, this study is very interesting, is that people that just spend a lot of time around their cattle like to check on them every day out there amongst them or check on them once a week, their cattle are a lot easier to handle when you put them through the shoots for vaccinating than cattle that you see people twice a year chasing them. And 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 because there's been a lot of discussion in stockmanship about having animals uh, run through the shoots to get them acclimated. Well, they weren't running them through the shoots. All they were doing is going out and checking on them. And if you're moving your cattle all the time and you're doing it right, they're going to get easier to handle. So the they other see thing you. What you I do when you switch pastures is you want to make sure you don't accidentally reward pushy behavior. If the cattle are pushing at a gate, wanting to switch pastures, you don't open the gate until they stand quietly. You want to reward polite behavior and then have them walk quietly past you. Hmm. That's probably good advice for any animal, I would imagine. <laughs> well, that's right, because if you put the feed down when they're pushing and shoving then you've rewarded pushing and shoving. And then you don't want big animals pushing and shoving. That's it's not good. Really it's good advice for child rearing as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I think this concludes the, the majority of our interview. I think one question I just want to ask in closing is you've mentioned it several times, and I really want to drive the point home. If someone is looking to learn about what to grow, uh, stock density, um, forageable cover crops, how to divide their pastures, you are you are saying look to someone local. Find yeah, a local you mentor. To, you can go to your university extension service. You can go to local grazing workshops. I'd also recommend subscribing to the grass um, stockman grass farmer. I'd recommend subscribing to that because unfortunately, a lot of their good material is not readily available online. I can't even look any of it up and hit a paywall online. I'd recommend um, getting a subscription to that and. Yeah. 
talking to lots of people, visiting places in your local area, because I want to make sure that when you start something new, that you have success with it. It's good advice. Get some yeah, get some you, boots on the ground. Local advice, and maybe start off with just a few cattle. I'm not I'm not a big fan of just diving in the deep end of the pool when you're brand new at doing something. It's all it's all very very good advice. I um we appreciate you so much. Is is there anything else that well, you want to add that we missed? Make sure you have good animal welfare. If you're in an arid country, you've got to watch the body condition on your animals and make sure that that um, you maintain adequate body condition. Um, lameness, but one of the best ways to prevent lameness in beef cattle is um, breeding for good feet and legs. There's genetic issues with um, with lameness. You want good leg conformation on your animals. That's really important. It makes sense. Before we part, I want to make sure we state the name of the paper we've been referencing tonight in case we didn't mention it before. We are referring to grazing cattle, sheep, and goats that are important parts of a sustainable agricultural future by Dr. Temple Grannon. You can find that online. Temple, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. It was great to be here, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axeandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at Wild Oak Farms. We'll see you next time.